Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. We're going to be looking at uh, several passages of Scripture again today, including a couple fairly lengthy ones. If you would like uh, a hard copy of the Bible to follow along. Again, I encourage you to bring one with you every week. But if you don't have one and you'd like one, again, scriptures will be up here. Uh, but if you want a hard copy of the Bible, we can get you one. Just raise your hand, let the ushers know. But last week, we looked at several passages of scripture, mostly but not exclusively in 1 Corinthians. The upshot of which was that Paul had laid this foundation of faith. And that foundation was Jesus Christ crucified. But he immediately immediately goes on to say that there's more. Look, there's deeper wisdom. There's spiritual wisdom beyond that foundation. And it can't be understood without being born again. And that's why this foundation is so important. That's why he determined when he came to them to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, because nothing else that he shared could possibly make sense to them, could possibly be uh, grasped by them and affect any change in their life if they didn't have that foundational experience of the new birth. To go from being uh, carnal men, mere men, to being a spiritual man by the new birth. He writes that, that they were carnal, not spiritual. But, and, but, and, and then this is the key. Because he talks about um, only the spiritual man can understand these deep truths, these secrets, the mysteries of God. Uh, But the carnal man, the natural man, is unable. And then then recognizes that they've experienced a new birth and then complains. He says, the problem is, he says, I couldn't explain this stuff to you at first because you were carnal. Here's the problem in chapter 3. You're still carnal. Even though you've experienced a new birth, you haven't grown up. You are spiritual men in the spiritual realm, in the spiritual reality. You have experienced a new birth. He's not calling into question their salvation. He says, but you're still acting like babies. I still can't share some of these deeper spiritual truths with you because you're still, uh, the only thing you can handle is milk, like babies. You've got to get over this envy and you've got to get over this comparing yourselves with one another. And, and this is the second time. He's only in the third chapter, and he's not writing it in chapters. But this is a longish letter, and he's on the very first quarter of it. And he's already for the second time saying, I can't believe you guys are going around comparing stories about who baptized you. You think you're more saved because I baptized you or Apollos baptized you? This is silly. Christ is the one who gets all the glory. So... Then he writes this beautiful illustration about a building. How the works that we do are building blocks of an edifice that we are helping to build or building on, supposedly, or as it should be, on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Some of these blocks in this illustration are made of gold, some of silver, some of precious stones. Some of them, it turns out, are made of wood or hay or stubble. And they are all tried by fire when we stand before Jesus. 
Let me read that part again. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Now, the, again, when he's talking about wood, hay, and stubble, he's not necessarily speaking about sin. He's talking about works that do not endure, that don't contribute to the kingdom, that don't fit on this foundation, that add nothing to the maturity of, of yourself or to the body of Christ at large or to the church. And the gold, silver, and precious stones are things that do produce maturity in your life and in the lives of others contribute to the growth of the church, the kingdom of God. And when we think about this moment where we're standing, having our works judged, giving an account for our deeds in the flesh, and again, is this going to be a literal building that is literally led on fire? I don't think so. But the picture endures for a reason. It's powerful. What remains and what determines our eternal reward is the gold, silver, and precious stones, the things that we did in this life that mean something in the kingdom of God. We are so obsessed, I think. When we think of salvation, we think of eternity. We are so narrow in our concern of heaven versus hell that sometimes the only thing we're concerned with is, long as I'm not burning in hell, I don't care. But you will care. And this saved, uh, so as through fire, I was having a conversation with uh, my little sister, Lori. Uh, where she'd heard this illustration. I think, you, I think she heard it, not, or did you make it up? She'd heard it. Uh, uh, but it's good. So when you think about, think about a house fire, and we've probably, many, some of you may have been through a house fire. Uh, we certainly all witnessed fires where somebody didn't just have a kitchen fire uh, that was contained, but it burned to the ground. There, there's, they're very, what are you laughing at? What do you, <laughs> there's, there are very few things more tragic than to watch somebody's house, their home, engulfed in flames. And there are these competing emotions in that moment. If you're standing there watching your house burn, number one is you should be deeply, deepful, deeply grateful that you got out of the house, that you have escaped. Thank God I am alive. My family is alive. My pets are alive. And at the same time, it's, I've just lost everything. That, I think, is exactly what Paul's writing about here. You'll be saved. You're not going to burn. Everything that you invested your time, energy, talents, and resources into is gone. What specifically does that look like in eternity? I don't know. But this word picture is there for a reason that we're not going to go, who cares? I'm in heaven. I've tried without much success to come up with hard examples of wood, hay, and stubble apart from sin because I don't think that's necessarily what Paul is talking about here. Uh, but when people lose their humility and their sense of responsibility to the body of Christ, it's easy to get off track. I, I would start there. That when I am less concerned with, with the eternal nature of my works, the eternal result of my, my works, and when I'm less concerned with my responsibility to you, when we are less concerned with our responsibility to each other. 
Uh, you know, it's, it's easier for me to come up with examples for people who are in occupational ministry, perhaps, when their focus becomes on uh, garnering more support, building their ministry, um, building name recognition, that sort of thing. But I would also include some things I've talked about before. You know, if we're seeking financial gain and worldly success without regard to their effect on the kingdom of God. There's nothing wrong with financial gain. There's nothing wrong with worldly success. You better know that. But if we are seeking those things and pursuing those things at the expense of our relationship God or with God and without regard to our relationship with God, they are wood, hay, and stubble. I've had conversations with people over the years. You have too, and I've seen these, this, these attitudes expressed many times. Uh, someone might say, well, you know, tell me about yourself. Well, I am an athlete. I'm an A student. I'm healthy. I'm popular. Um, I have a great family. Uh, okay. Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian too. All right. Or talking with somebody, uh, and, I, and I'm thinking of specific people. I'm not speaking in generalities here, where they're talking about their children or their grown children. Uh, my son's doing real well. He's got an excellent job. Uh, his kids are all now in college. Um, the, he just built a new home. He's the head of this committee, very popular. He's so respected in the community. I wish he would go to church. I wish he had a relationship with God, but at least he's taking care of things. Now, either one of those, if you're talking about, hey, the main thing is, my kids are doing well in the world. I'm doing well in the world. I'm popular. Uh, I'm succeeding at everything I'm, uh, I'm doing. And again, zero or little regard for the eternal nature of these things and the spiritual realities. What does Jesus say about that? What does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his soul? We have to take that seriously. And it's not one or the other. God is a good father. He delights in our prosperity. The Bible tells us that. And our success, it's just never supposed to be. It cannot be at the expense of our faith and our relationship with him. I want to dive right into the hard stuff that I warned you about last week. Toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he told a number of parables to his disciples that illustrate what it will be like when he returns. Uh, let's read a short one first. In Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 45. Matthew 24, 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying in his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will say to him, you're saved, but as through fire. Does Jesus say that? What's it say? And will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. For the sin of what? Stop worrying about when the master's coming back. Who's the master in this story? Just, just use your deep imagination. Where did he go? He ascended into heaven. Is he coming back? Yes. But when? We don't know. We don't know the day or the hour. When Peter wrote about, when Peter wrote about the, the second coming, you understand this was, just, this was all within uh, just a few decades of when Jesus left, and there were already murmurings and complainings among people in the church. Where is he? Where, if he's coming back, where is he? This was 2,000 years ago nearly. And they were already complaining. And Peter's like, don't, don't complain. You think there's been a delay. You think he's, you know, he, that, he's, that, there's, there's a, that God has forgotten. There's nothing about this that is slothful. There's nothing about this that has anything to do with anything other than God being merciful and not being willing, willing that any should perish. And we should be able to put up with the garbage we're putting up with if it means if, if one more day here means a thousand more souls saved or one more soul saved. Now, but we think, and again, what's evil about this servant? Eh, he's not coming back. It's been forever. It'll probably be forever. And it's not a matter of, oh, I miss my master. I wish he'd be back. It's like, He's not even paying attention to me. I can do what I want. So he begins to beat his fellow servants, eat and drink with the drunkards, etc. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's that make you think of? Because it makes me think of hell. Makes me think of a lake of fire. Listen to this. This next parable is longer. So let me give you a quick outline. We're still not going to read the whole thing before we read the crucial part. It's about ten virgins, some translations say bridesmaids, who took oil lamps to look for the bridegroom. Five of them were wise enough to bring extra lamp oil, and five were foolish enough not to. And at midnight, the cry went out that the bridegroom has come. He's arrived. And the foolish bridesmaids went to the wise ones and said, give us some of your oil. We're out. And they said, no, no, no. If we give you ours that we had the foresight to prepare for and to bring, we won't have enough for ourselves. So go buy some. So while they scrambled to buy it, look at this, Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 10. Matthew 25, 10. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And let me just say this before I move on to the, the, the longer one that I'm going to read. Uh, this bears repeating because sometimes the only thing we have in mind when we're thinking about how long do I have to get right with God is, far as I know, I am healthy. Even if, even if something happens tomorrow where I learn that I'm not as healthy as I was, the diagnosis will tell me I've got, I've got two months, I've got two years to get things right, to get things better with God. Yeah, you might. Of course, we can never predict that stuff accurately. We can confess. We can say what God's word says about it. However, one thing we don't know is when's Jesus coming back? We don't know. 
Well, then how do I know whether I'm supposed to be ready or when I'm supposed to be ready? You stay ready. Give me oil in my lamp. All right, whatever. Give me gas for my Ford. Keep me chugging for the Lord. Is that what we used to sing? Anyway. Now, without further commentary on that one for now, the parable of the talents. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14. Matthew 25, 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. Hmm. Who's the man traveling to a far country? This is Jesus ascending into heaven, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. You understand that talents was a measure of weight of silver or gold, uh, and it represents all of the resources in this case that the master gives his servants, that Jesus gives us. To another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. And his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let me stop there for a second and notice this. The reward and the reaction, the judgment spoken over the one, with, one who had made five talents was identical to what he said to the one who made two talents. They weren't being judged by the net profit of their investments. And I'm using those terms, but you mean I'm talking about everything they produced, everything of eternal value for the kingdom. We were having this discussion at coffee the other day. You know, thank God, when I stand before Jesus... And somehow, maybe in one of the categories, well, let's see how you did here. Let's see how you did there. Let's see how many people you led to the Lord. Scott, uh, you led uh, 237 people to the Lord. I, I, I'm not keeping track. I don't know how many people I've personally led to the Lord, okay? Now, some of you would say 247. Wow, that's amazing. But I would say, perhaps, ooh, Billy Graham Led three million to the Lord. I'm sunk. God didn't give me what he gave Billy Graham. He gave Billy Graham a specific calling, and he gave him specific talents, specific gifts and resources to fulfill that calling. What I'm being judged for is what did I do with what he gave me in terms of fulfilling what he told me to do with it? I gave you five, you made five. He says, I gave you two, you made two. Hey, you made five, so enter into your reward and it's awesome. You made two, enter into your reward, it's not as awesome as five. No. You were both faithful with the little I gave you, and I'm going to make you ruler over much. Now, then, verse 24 
he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A couple things. When the wicked servant, the lazy servant, the one with one talent said, I knew you to be a hard man who expected to reap where he didn't sow. Was he making an accurate judgment about the master? If the... If if we understand the parable correctly, and the master of Jesus, the master is Jesus, does that properly characterize the Jesus that you know and love? No. In fact, it was a stupid thing to say, because who sowed that talent into this servant's life? The master. No, I expect to reap, but I sowed. I didn't say, hey, take your own talent and invest it for something for me. I gave you the talent to invest. And if, but he's, so he's not saying, hey, if you knew I was like that, which I am, he's not saying that. He's saying, if you thought I was like that, then why didn't you take that talent and invest it in somebody else? I would say this. If you're, if, I, 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 sometimes I feel like I'm walking a, a high wire here, a, a tightrope here, because I don't want to be seen as pulling on something when I'm not. But going back to the offering, this is one of the simplest things to do. It's one of the easiest ways to obey because it's like, I'm not sure where my place is in the kingdom. I'm not sure what I'm building of eternal value. This is one concrete thing you can do. You take what you have earned, recognize that God gave you the strength, the talents, the opportunities to earn whatever it is you've earned. Again, it all belongs to him. And say, until I figure out, until I hear from God something else he's supposed, uh, I'm supposed to do, I'm giving and you are building the kingdom, you are building that edifice with gold, silver, and precious stones, almost literally. You are investing your blood, toil, tears, and sweat into the kingdom of God. You take a man like Billy Graham, who's got, who had a superb communication skills and, and, a, and an almost incomparable uh, a gift of uh, evangelism, but he couldn't do it without people putting money in the plate. And I say this every time we have a Neil and Danette Childs, every time we have a minister, when we have Tony Cook here in a couple weeks, uh, they are doing awesome things and they are reaching people by the thousands, tens of thousands, and, and they're, they're, the effect of their ministry is reverberating around the globe, but they can't do it without us. And therefore, every dime I put in that offering means I have a part in every soul that they touch. Every person that is healed, delivered, saved. I have something to do with that. And my, something as mundane as money means an eternal reward for me because of what that money does. It's a good place to start is what I'm saying. All right. 
Now, you know, this is the scary part. This is the hard part. Cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, you know we don't preach salvation by works. I believe Scripture is clear, and I believe you know Scripture is clear, that we are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's nothing I can add to that. There's nothing I can do, no works I can perform that make me more qualified for salvation, that make me more deserving of salvation. Nothing I can do to get more saved. Jesus paid it all. And anything that smacks of salvation by works has bothered me almost from the second I became a Christian. Once I understood that Jesus had done all the work and I had to receive that by faith, uh, that was so liberating for me that I would get offended at anything that sounded like salvation by works. I remember Keith Green's epic recording of the sheep and the goats. Anybody remember this? It was kind of a song, but it was more of a spoken word set to his superb piano playing. And he just basically went through the scripture, uh, but he did it uh, in a dramatic fashion. He did the voices of the people who were speaking to Jesus. He did the voice of Jesus as he was passing judgment. And you remember it, right? Uh, when I was uh, sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. And they're like, when, when did we ever see you sick and in prison? Hey, if you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And then to the goats, he said, you never visited me. You never fed me. You never clothed me. When did we ever see you in need of these things and not do it? He says, if you did it not to the least of these, you did it not to me. And it's this, and it's like, this is really, oh, he's a phenomenal musician. And so he gets through the whole story. And then he says at the end, and the only difference between the sheep and the goats, according to the scriptures, is what they did and didn't do. And I remember hearing that going, what? That's salvation by works. But looking at that parable, at that story, at that moment, that's exactly what it says. You can't find any other difference in that story than what they did or didn't do. Same with the talents here. So what's the deal? Is it by grace through faith alone? Or is it faith plus works? For the answer, we turn to James. A lot of you knew right where I was going, didn't you? James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. James 2, 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. <laughs> and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. 
And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. This passage right here, more than anything else, is what caused Martin Luther to reject James as a legitimate part of the Bible. He really felt, he called James an epistle of straw because Martin Luther was so moved by what he read in Romans and the whole message of justification by faith alone that when he read this, he's like, no, James is arguing with Paul. He's not. He's not saying faith is good, but it's not enough. He's saying faith without works isn't faith. Illustration I came up with years ago, one of the very first messages I preached in this pulpit. It's probably not as awesome as I thought it was back then, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. It's like if I were going through, the, I'm looking for a car, I'm going through the one ads, or maybe today on Facebook Marketplace, and I see a description. Uh, this is about what I want. It's the kind of vehicle I want. It says right here, it's got a certain number of miles, it's only got this much rust, it's got this much, uh, the tires have this much life, uh, blah, 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 blah. And the price is right. So I go, I, I tell him, if this, if this is everything you say it is, I want it. And I go to buy it. And he takes my money and I get in, I put the key in and nothing happens. So I'm thinking dead battery. I pop the hood, I open it up and guess what's missing? The motor. There's no engine in this. And so I say, wait a second, where's the engine? Never said it had an engine. I didn't lie to you about the body. I didn't lie to you about the tires. I didn't lie to you about anything. If you want an engine, I'll sell you one. No, 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 no. What's the assumption if you're buying a car? A car without a motor is dead. In fact, an automobile without a motor is not an automobile by definition. The mobile part means it goes, and it doesn't go without an engine. It's not like, well... You have a car without a motor, and I have a car with a motor. If you don't have a motor, you don't have a car. You have a chassis, you have a body, whatever, a frame. Faith, true faith, is faith with works. If it doesn't produce works, it's not faith. This is what James is saying about Abraham. How do we know he had faith? Because he really did believe these things. And if, it's just like uh, positive and negative. If you believed, if I said, hey, look, uh, this little jar of oil, it's worth a million dollars. And I guarantee you there's a buyer. You can sell this thing in the next hour. And the first person who comes and grabs it, it's yours. If you believe that, you are going to be up here like a dart, right? But you don't believe that. It's not true, by the way. Don't think, what if he's telling the truth? It's not. I don't, I don't know what this is worth. It's nice. I forget where it came from. I think maybe, uh, oh, Gary Crowell. I think this was from the Orient. I'm not sure. Might be mixing it up with something else. And there is oil in there that I use to anoint the sick. But if, you be, if I said, anybody can have this, first one up here, and you really believed it, you could sit there and talk, I really believe it. I think that's true. I think that's true. But there's no way that if you believe that, you're just going to sit there. Right? I mean, unless 
there's a secret multi-billionaire in here, and you're like, I can't be bothered to get up there for a million dollars. Same way. If I tell you that right outside that door are two man-eating, hungry tigers, and I promise you that if you go out that door, you're going to get eaten, you cannot legitimately and honestly say, yeah, I believe that. No, I believe you 100% and walk out those doors. If you believe me, you're not going out those doors. Now, the Bible tell, gives us both of these things. If you do these things, if you'll build on this foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, lasting things, even if it costs you, your reward is going to be abundant. It's what Peter wrote. Remember, we looked at 2 Peter uh, last week. An abundant, you, uh, make your calling and election sure, and an abundant entrance in the kingdom will be provided for you. If we believe that, we are going to do those things. We say, and this is the tricky part, because we honestly believe ourselves when we say it. No, I really do believe that stuff. But we don't do it. And we feel like that, that we're telling the truth, but we're not. If we're not doing it, it's because we really don't believe it. The faith isn't there. But he also says, if you do these things, or if you don't do these things I've told you to do, my response isn't going to be, eh, oh well. At least you believed in me. What's his response? Cast that wicked servant into outer darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, I am not saying up here categorically that that means a Christian, a genuinely saved Christian can go to hell, lose their salvation. The theological quibbling boils down to this. Exactly that. If the person that is cast into outer darkness, if a person is cast into outer darkness, is it because they lost their salvation? Or is it because they were never really saved in the first place? And the way these verses and these passages, passages are preached always boils down to a certain theological or philosophical presupposition, whether it's going to be the Calvinist or the Arminian. Those are two, they are not the only, but they are two major divisions. The Arminian says if, if a person goes to hell, uh, they, uh, they, they've lost their salvation, uh, that a Christian can lose their salvation. Uh, a Calvinist would say if a confessing Christian went to hell, it's because they were never saved in the first place. And we can pull our hair out. We can wrestle with this. You know what my answer is? Who cares? Does that really matter? Remember, again, make your call and election sure. Look at Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Philippians 2, 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Remember, it's not work for your salvation. It's work it out. The salvation has been worked in you. We, what's that Greek word? Katergatsamai. It's a Greek word that means something on the inside being worked or produced on the outside. Since you are saved, let that salvation produce fruit in your life. 
Do it in fear and trembling. You ought to be looking for that. You ought to be questioning your salvation if there is no fruit of the Spirit in your life. I would rather have you question it. And it's scary. I think I've mentioned this a half dozen times, uh, probably just in the years that I've been back here, nine years now, where it's sometimes more difficult to lead an older person, a very senior citizen, to salvation because they first have to come to grips with the fact that they have lived that long unsaved. Whoa, I thought I was saved, but if I'm listening to you now, that means I can't accept that. I can't deal with the fact that if I had died before this moment, I'd have gone to hell, so I'll just ignore all that. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of perverse. Much better, much better to say, wow, I was wrong, and I'm glad I was corrected before it was too late. But there might be people in this room that where the only reason you think you're saved is because I said a prayer when I was six years old. You might be saved, and it might have started, your born-again experience might have started when you were six years old. I am still convinced that when I prayed that prayer at age 12, I was saved. Not because I haven't sinned since then, but because I have built on that. Hmm? Yeah. But if the only, why do you think you're saved? Well, I said this prayer, and I've never unprayed it. I've had this conversation with people very close to me. I'm thinking one individual very close to me. It's my wife. No, I'm kidding. It wasn't my wife. Where it's, no. Where this person says, I'm still a Christian. And I said, what is it about your life that would make anybody think you were a Christian? I cannot see this. I would never, I would never in a million years assume you were a Christian if I didn't know that and you hadn't told me that. There is a strong, strong possibility that a person who says that is not a Christian. And I don't mean not a Christian anymore, but it might be that. If you are, if you are renouncing Christ with everything in you except for the words, I renounce Christ, eh, that's a form of faith, sort of the evil mirror image of it. But it might mean that when you said it, you didn't understand what you were getting into. And that spirit has never had the, the spirit of God has never had the opportunity to work the change he desires to work in you. Look at this. Let me try this. Imagine, uh, Imagine an employee, business owner, hires a guy to work. And say for a year, say for five years, this guy never misses a day. He never shows up late. He never leaves early. He is friendly to the other employees. He is friendly to the customers. Never steals. Never does anything to hurt the company. Never speaks badly about the boss or, or about, the com uh, about the company. And then the boss comes into the store, into the branch one day, and fires him. Business is booming. This isn't a cost-cutting measure. In fact, the business continues to hire more people every day, but they fire this guy. Why would this happen? Why would you fire a guy or gal who fits the description I just gave you? He's not stealing. He's not bad-mouthing. He's not missing work. How about this? He's also not working. He's not doing any of the things he was hired to do. 
He's not shouldering his or her, uh, he or she is not shouldering his or her part of the load. They're just there. Would you put up with that? How would you feel about that if you were the hardest working employee in that company? Maybe you showed up late once or twice, but you got your work done and you did it right. And you're watching a guy who the only thing he's got going for him is he punches that time clock on time and he's there every day, but he doesn't lift a finger to do anything. Would you, would, how would you feel about him getting paid what you're getting paid? God's not a fool. And he's not going to be mocked. He's going over the accounting. Wait a second. This guy is producing nothing for the company. I had that conversation uh, with my son. Uh, I, the first time he got hired by a place, I said, look, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking about how much you're making an hour. Your, your boss or the person who hired you is looking, this is what we're paying this guy for a year. And it's significant. That means that somewhere in their calculations, the money that they are investing in you means more money than that for the company. They're not going to make a, a decision to give you money that's going to cost them. It's a matter of we think you are worth it to us, that we will profit by your being here and working for us. And so, again, what's one of the descriptions of this evil, wicked servant? He is unprofitable. Get rid of him. We have no use for him. So, God saves us for a purpose. And gives us gifts, talents, resources, and time in order to fulfill that purpose. And he absolutely expects a return on that investment. This is scary. It's scary to me anyway. And sadly, many people approach this with the question, maybe even right now you're calculating things. All right, exactly how much do I have to do to know I'm saved? How much do I have to do to get in? What's the bare minimum? <laughs> Wrong question. Because that's approaching it like earning your salvation. True faith produces the works. True living faith causes us to increase in righteousness, spiritual fruit, spiritual growth. But I'm also reminded of this. I'm going to let you off the hook just a little bit. Ezekiel wrote out a vision that he had of impending judgment. And that judgment was going to start in the house of the Lord. It wasn't going to stop there. But his first beef was with the people of God, especially the spiritual leaders, the priesthood, because they had allowed all of this perversion and idol worship to creep into the nation, and that was polluting them to such a degree that the surrounding people, the surrounding nations, were unable to see a difference between themselves and God's people. They were robbed of seeing what a difference it could make when a nation followed the one true God, because the one nation that was given the revelation of the one true God was not following him, and in fact, we're, we're living in a way that completely rejected him. So judgment's going to start there. And we come to this scene in Ezekiel chapter 9, beginning in verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple, and he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. 
To the others, he said, in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. One of the greatest indicators of spiritual lostness, of carnality, of lack of production in the work of the kingdom, of the gospel, the good news is this. The stuff that is going on in the world around you that is contrary to the gospel of the kingdom doesn't really bother you or doesn't really bother you anymore. When we see or hear about churches abandoning biblical truth, it really ought to grieve us. I was having a conversation with a guy I met recently. He found out I'm a pastor, and he was asking questions, just a few questions. Maybe they were polite, but he seemed interested about uh, how long I'd been doing this, what kind of church. And uh, so I asked him, uh, do you, are you a believer? Do you belong to a church? And he said, yeah, I do. He says, I'm feeling a little guilty now because we, well, my wife and I really need to go back. We haven't been there. We've been so busy, but, but, but we can get there, and, and, and I'm just realizing we need to get back there. So I asked him, uh, he's a good guy, really like this guy. Uh, <clears throat> I asked him, uh, what church do you go to? So he told me. I wasn't familiar with it, so I looked it up. And everything I read was about how this is who we are. We accept everybody. We love everybody. Everybody gets plugged in. Everybody gets connected. Everybody uh, uh, gets to serve. We value people. There is no judgment. Everybody belongs. No one is disqualified. Why? Because Jesus is love. And so we are going to love. I think Jesus was mentioned once in the whole statement. It wasn't even a statement of faith. They called it a manifesto. Jesus was mentioned once, maybe twice, but only in the context of Jesus loved everyone, so we will too. There was nothing, and I mean nothing, about sin, righteousness, heaven, hell, the blood, the cross, resurrection, Holy Spirit, the authority of the Word of God. Nothing. No doctrinal statement at all. This is the kind of thing that makes me sigh and cry. If people are to the point where they are looking on the internet for a church, and so they see this church, maybe somebody says, oh, check this one out, check mine out. So they go and they check it out, and they think this is the saving message of Jesus Christ? Is that message going to save them? No. Now, Maybe it's the old bait and switch. Maybe it's like, look, we are such a welcoming and accepting and loving people that we are. We're going to embrace these people, and then we can get the truth of God in them. Kind of don't get that impression. Never mind what the unsaved world is, going, uh, is doing, what they're involved in. What should we expect from unregenerate mere men? I need to look at the church. I, more importantly, I need to look at me and ask, why am I not doing better? If the Spirit of God is in me, that should be making a difference. And that difference needs to be obvious to the world around me. It needs to be obvious to you, my brothers and sisters. And it needs to be obvious to the people outside the four walls of this church. If it is not making a difference 
there are at least two things I have to contend with or consider. Am I really saved? Why do I think I am if I'm not? Is my faith producing corresponding actions? If not, do I really have faith? That's one scenario. I need to honestly consider the possibility that I'm not saved. If none of the descriptors of a saved Christian God-fearing man that are in the Word of God are obvious in my life, I need to ask myself, no matter what I thought I prayed or said, am I really saved? Or am I going to be saved as through fire? Will my eternal soul be saved but without a reward in the day of judgment? Why? Do I need to make some radical changes in my priorities? Do I need to start investing in my eternal future? Praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. I admit it can be hard to know where we stand, just based on what we've looked at today. Am I unsaved or am I simply borderline unprofitable? How long? Can I remain an unprofitable servant and still be considered my master's servant? Stand with me, if you can. Now, full disclosure, not full disclosure. I don't have time for full disclosure. It's already after 11 o'clock. But you've heard me preach over the years. You know where my heart is. I love Jesus. I love people. I love you guys. And my personal experience is that God has been extraordinarily merciful to me. I look at years of my life that I've wasted. I look at stupid decisions I've made it. I've made sinful thoughts, sinful actions. I've been such an imperfect servant that God has been so good to me. Do you know why? Number one, it's because even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. But it's also because even when I was doing the stuff that was displeasing to him, I never kid myself about it being displeasing to him. Oh, I might have been hiding it from other people, but I never tried to, oh, there's really nothing wrong with this. I'm going to just change my doctrine just to, just to accommodate some choices I'm making. Or, you know, it was never usually that deep anyway. We're just talking about getting off track. But God was always there to welcome me back. So I lean very, very heavily into the whole mercy message. But if you've made the decision that I'm just not going to do anything... I'm not going to worry about anything because, hey, I confessed Jesus with my mouth. Therefore, I'm saved. And as long as I go to heaven, I don't care if I smell like smoke. Take a step back and ask yourself, are you really believing in the Jesus of the Bible? Because that's the only Jesus that can save you. And when he saves you, when he truly saves you, something happens. You become a spiritual man, spiritually minded, able to understand spiritual truths. And once you hear those spiritual truths, you understand them. They make a difference because if you believe them, truly believe them, that's faith. And what does faith do? Produces corresponding actions. No matter what you think it is, no matter what you think you believe, if it's not producing corresponding actions, it's not faith. Now, who needs to be saved? Well, 
start with everybody needs to be saved, but I mean in this room. I'm going to do something different. You guys know how, all of you probably know how I normally do this. So I'm not going to do it normally today. This hasn't been a normal message for me, so we'll do an abnormal altar call. And I promise I'm not going to pull a fast one. I strongly believe in the biblical necessity of a public witness for Christ. But for starters, let's do this. Something I haven't done uh, but a handful of times ever. But I'm going to do today. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I don't want anybody looking around. I don't want anybody curious about what anybody else is thinking or doing. If you have come to the conclusion that I thought I was saved and I'm not, or if you are a person who came in here today, I wasn't saved when I came in. Now I really know I'm not saved. I've never been born again. I've never confessed Jesus Christ as my Lord. Or, or taking a step back. I made that confession, but I never really gave him lordship of my life. I need to be saved. I want you to slip your hand up. I'm not going to say, all right, now open your eyes. And if you put your hand up, come up here. I just want you to know. I want you to put your hand up. I see that hand over there. Thank you. Anybody else? There's another one. There's another one. I'm not talking about a recommitment here. I'm talking about I am giving my life to Christ for the first time. I don't want to rush this, but I don't want to wait all day either. If you know, if your heart is thumping, you're like, man, I just, it's the hardest thing I've ever done, but I have to admit, I don't think I'm saved. I don't think I belong to Jesus. I see that hand on the front row. Thank you. Anybody. Don't walk out of here. Don't let pride or any... I'm not going to tell anybody. We can talk later if you want. I just want to pray this prayer with you. All right. Keep your eyes closed. Keep your heads down. I'm glad that everybody else in here is secure in your salvation. But I hope you smelled the smoke and felt the fire this morning just a little bit. And maybe you're saying, I've never doubted my salvation, and I know. I know what you're talking about, Scott. God has remained faithful even when I've been faithless. But I need to step it up. I need to make my calling an election, an election sure. I need to make it clear to the rest of this body. I need to make it clear to the world. I need a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. I need to f- commit myself to being the man, the woman God calls me to be. I want you to raise your hand. There's one. There's one. There's one. There's a bunch. Praise the Lord. You can put your hands down. You can open your eyes. I want everybody, this is the other thing we don't often do, I want everybody to repeat after me. First part's a prayer of salvation. Second part's a prayer of recommitment. I want us all to speak these things out just as an act of solidarity, okay? Lord God in heaven, I know that I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and I thank you for providing your Son, giving Him to die on a cross for my sins. I recognize it was for me, and I thank you, Jesus, for that spilled blood. I believe that Jesus is Lord.
And I believe that God has raised Jesus from the dead. Come into my life. Be my Lord. I recognize that as I give my life to you, I'm really just giving you what you've already paid for. I'm yours. Use me as you see fit. And by faith, I receive every good gift, everything I need to accomplish the mission that you give me. Father, I recommit myself to you and I repent from any laziness, any attitudes, any sins that are holding me back. I turn and I yield myself to you, your spirit, your leading, your word, and I will, in the name of Jesus, live a life that is consistent with the faith I profess. I will be a profitable servant. I will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Holy Spirit, fill me afresh. Live powerfully. Be powerfully present in my life, in my ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.